Good morning, church family. Please join me in opening your Bibles to the book of Colossians. My name is Bumsa, and I have the delight of reading scripture with you today. Our passage is Colossians chapter 1, verses 24, up to chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I uh, was having a conversation not long ago uh, with a friend, and we were talking about a particular political issue and uh, my friend said, well, of course you're for this. After all, you're a Christian, and Jesus would be for this, and, and Jesus is full of love and compassion, and so he would be for this particular political uh, issue, political persuasion. The same day, I was having a conversation with uh, another friend, and the same political issue came up, same issue, same day, and this friend said, well, of course you're against this because Jesus is against this. And Jesus would not be in favor of this. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you would be against this. And, and it struck me how interesting this was, how you know, two people that I respect, I like both these people, were, were presenting two different Jesuses to me. And, and it just so happened that the Jesuses that they were presenting were framed largely by their political perspective, by their persuasions, by the different kind of passions that, that they had. And I think that this is happening a lot, not just with political ideologies, but with, with all things. <laughs> if you're a greedy person driven by wealth, it's easy to present a kind of Jesus that'll make you rich. If you're a, a person that uh, is really into social justice, it's easy to present a Jesus that that's kind of his, his main MO. And, and, and it may be that parts of how you're presenting Jesus actually do come 
from what he's revealed, what is true about him, but other parts that he has revealed about himself might be neglected. <laughs> the Jesus that my friends were believing in, it's some, somebody was wrong, right? Or maybe they were both wrong. They were missing who the actual Jesus is, the, the Jesus who even now is reigning from his father's right hand, who is now seated on the throne of God. And that's why, because we don't want to do that, that's why I think what we're doing right now is so important. This fall, we're going to be looking at the book of Colossians and, and really asking that question, who is Jesus? What is he like? How has he revealed himself? How does he present himself to be? You know, Jackson said something last week that I, I thought was an incredibly important uh, phrase in, in a great sermon that he preached for us. He said, no matter how highly you think of Jesus, you do not think of him highly enough. No matter how highly you think of Jesus, you do not think of him highly enough. And I think that's what I want us to see in this series as we study the book of Colossians. It's that we would see Jesus rightly, or at least as rightly as we can is that we would see the kingdom of God rightly, fully, gain a perspective on it that comes from God himself. Now, God has presented himself in his word. I want, it, I want us to at least be able to see Jesus in the same way that Paul sees him. <laughs> There's something to this text that, that presents Jesus so clearly in his weight and his worth. And I think Paul gets this. You know, Jesus in his ministry, he gave these two back-to-back -back parables in Matthew 13, and they're very powerful. The first is about a treasure in a field. And he says it this way. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he covered it up. And this is the part that's so striking. Then in his joy, he went and sold everything that he had to buy the field. And, and, and of course, it implies to get the treasure. Now, that's, that's interesting. Something so weighty, so valuable, that everything that the man has, it's worth everything that the man has to exchange in order to get this treasure. Jesus goes on. He, he talks about this pearl. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine pearl who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold everything that he had to buy it. Finding God in Christ is something that is so valuable, that has such value, that everything else is worthless in comparison. Everything else is meaningless in comparison to knowing God in Christ. Is that what your relationship with the Lord is like? <laughs> is, that, is that how you understand? And this is, this is so valuable. This is so rich. This is so weighty that really everything, in my, everything else in my life is, is worthless in comparison to knowing God in Christ. You know, a lot of us, you know, Christianity is important to us because it's important to our family. You know, it's important to my, my grandparents. And so it's important to me. 
Maybe some of us, Christianity is important for us because we like the community. I like these people. I want to have some friends, so I go to church. Maybe for some people, Christianity is important to me because, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I see its moral value. I want to have some sort of moral structure about my life. Or for some of us, Christianity, you know, we, we kind of like to have Jesus in our lives. We kind of imagine him to kind of show up when we're in need of comfort. He's kind of like an imaginary friend that just comforts us. But that's not this. <laughs> you know, if that's where you are, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just wanting you to see how Jesus actually presents himself. It, it, he's not just some moral figure that kind of gives us some moral definition about our lives. He's, he, he's not just some imaginary friend that kind of comforts us when we're a little sad. No, no, the, the way the Bible talks about Jesus is he is a treasure that is so valuable that if you really find him, everything else becomes worthless all of a sudden. That's incredible. That's weighty. You know, you may not believe that. Again, I mean, I, I want to present you this way that maybe... <laughs> This is hard. This is actually hard to believe. This is, this is hard. I mean, I don't know that we actually looked at Jesus like this. I'll be honest, this week in my study, as I was kind of thinking about this passage, I was like, man, Jackson was right. I do not think of Jesus as highly as I should. But Paul, I do believe one of the great things about studying Colossians is Paul, there's a gateway with Paul. In Philippians 3, Paul basically talks about his own life and his own life is kind of a living illustration of the parable of the treasure in the field. He says this in Philippians 3, uh, verse four. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, if that list of accomplishments doesn't mean much to you, you can go back a slide. If that list of accomplishments doesn't mean much to you, it's because this is, of course, given in a first century Jewish context. But to kind of give that list of accomplishments in our day, it would be something like this. If anybody thinks he has confidence or reason to boast, I have more. I was born of this wealthy, great American family, right? I went to all the right prep schools. I, I went to, I was educated in the Ivy League. I got the perfect internships in the summer. I got the high paying job right out of school. I married a woman from the, another great American family. I was on numerous 40 under 40 lists, right? I achieved everything the world around me said was valuable to achieve, but yet, verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is Paul's treasure in a field. I found something that was so valuable that all of these other gains I had, all these other achievements I had, it was loss, it was nothing. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered the loss of everything and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul met Jesus and it totally changed his life. He found the treasure in the field. He traded everything in. It cost him everything for knowing Jesus. And again, my question to all of us and myself included, do we really see Jesus like this? 
There's, there's a lot in this Colossians 1 passage, but, but two things I, I wanna look at with you is, first of all, the worth of Jesus, and then secondly, the cost of Jesus. The worth of Jesus and the cost of Jesus. When we look at the worth of Jesus, there was two phrases that, as I studied this text this week, that, that really just kept popping out at me. One is, is a pretty popular part of the passage, verse 27. Paul says, to them... God chose to make how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory. I mean, just look at this language that he uses over and over. The riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, and here's the phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You want glory? It's found here. Christ in you. The second in chapter two, and this one just, Again, blew my mind. I'll start at the beginning just to give us the context. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. So he's saying, I'm ministering for you and for all who have not seen me face to face. And here's his hope. Here's why Paul's doing what he's doing. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Here's that language again. I want them to understand what God is up to. And here he explains it, which is Christ. And then he says this, what a phrase. Which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. (laughs) All the treasures. (laughs) You want wisdom? You want knowledge? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in this great mystery of God that's been revealed which is Jesus. This is big language. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. This isn't, I love Jesus because my grandma did. This isn't imaginary friend Jesus that comes out and comforts me. This isn't the Jesus that I kind of hold up as the symbol for my political ideology, Jesus. You know, this isn't even, I want a nice afterlife so I believe in Jesus, Jesus. You know, a lot of commentators, actually, the, Jesus, the hope of glory, that's what they're saying. They say, Jesus, the hope of glory. Jesus, is the hope of glory is the hope of heaven. I think what Paul's saying here is more than that, as big as that is. Christ in you, Christ in you, your hope for glory. If you, if you know Christ, you can find glory. Christ in all the, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, if you want any wisdom, if you want any knowledge, it's found in him. As highly as you think of Jesus, as Jackson said, (laughs) we don't think of him highly enough. I mean, what does it mean to know Jesus? And really what Paul's getting at here is if if you know Jesus, if you know the saving power of God in Jesus, if you have a relationship with God in Jesus, then all the riches and wonders of knowing God, of being in God, the one who has all authority and all power and all goodness and all love, You have access to all of that, all peace, all knowledge, all wisdom. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor, at the beginning of one of his early sermons, this was early in his ministry, he began a sermon like this. Just just hear these words. He says, the study of God or or knowing God is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. 
No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than the thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than any man who simply plods along this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect. Nothing will so magnify the whole soul of a man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of that great subject of the deity. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. In the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in its immensity, that you shall come forth refreshed and invigorated. I know of nothing that can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Christ in you. This is glory. This is the hope of glory. I want to hone in on that word. The, the word glory in the Greek is, is the Greek doxa. It's, it's where we get doxology, but you could think about it this way. It's, it's what are you ascribing worth to? What are you saying is worthy, right? That's what's glorious. It's that which you say that's worthy, that's important. And we're ascribing worth to things all the time. It, the, the key is, are you ascribing worth to the thing that is the weightiest thing? Are, are you ascribing worth rightly? Are you ascribing worth correctly? You know, the Hebrew word for glory is the Hebrew kavod. And I love this word. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. It means weight. <laughs> are you ascribing worth to the weighty thing, the densest thing, the thing that will last, the thing that has authority, right? And here's the deal. You all want a hope of glory, <laughs> You all want to be attached to something that is glorious, right? That's why bad football teams don't have many fans, right? Because nobody wants to be attached to something that's not glorious. You want to be attached to something that's weighty, that lasts, that's meaningful, that goes on. It's why the ancients built the pyramids, why they built these great temples, if you've seen these ancient structures, they three, four, five thousand years old, and they're still standing. They're they're glorious. They're eternal. The ancients had a sense of that. That was their hope of glory. Let's attach ourselves to this literally weighty thing <laughs> that won't be moved, that won't be shaken. It's why even still today, you know, we <laughs> you ever read a biography of somebody that built a great company? They always talk about it in these terms. I wanted to attach myself. I want to be a part of something big, something that would outlast me. We all want a hope of glory. What Paul is saying here is no, the hope of glory, the weightiest thing, the eternal thing, the one who goes on, the one who has true power is Jesus. Jesus, the hope of glory, the almighty, the important, the most valuable. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Have you been awakened to that? 
Proverbs 9.10 talks about, um, it talks about this idea of fear. And I think it's an important biblical idea to understand. And the author of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the same idea that Paul's getting at here. If you want wisdom, the, the filter, the lens by which you can find wisdom is through the Lord, to fear the Lord, to know the Lord. The knowledge, he says, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The word for insight there is the Hebrew binah. And, and you could translate it this way. I mean, I understand why the translators did what they did. But you could say, the knowledge of the Holy One is knowledge. You want knowledge, get to know God. Knowledge is found in the knowledge of God. The fear of the Lord is where you get wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is where you get knowledge. And this word fear, it's one of these words. Now, it doesn't mean, whenever you see the idea of fear in the Bible, the way the Bible uses fear, it's never the, the kind of fear that pushes you away from something. It's always the kind of fear that draws you to something. Usually, if you're afraid of something, if you have fear towards something, what do you do? You get away from it, right? But that's not the way that the Bible, the Hebrew there is Yerah. That's not the way that Yerah is used. Yerah is presented with the fear of the Lord. It's always presenting God in such a way that you're drawn into him, not propelled away from him. I think of Psalm 130. This is an incredible text. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, who could stand? Good question, right? If God were to count your sin, your iniquity, your offenses for him, could any of you stand? Would any of you stand before a holy God? No. We, we know the answer. But then the psalmist says this amazing word. But with you, there is forgiveness. There, God is a merciful God. With God, there is forgiveness. We can be forgiven in the Lord. Now, this is the amazing phrase, though. Verse four. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's that word again, yurah. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With every other worldview, every other worldview, forgiveness is something that relieves fear. But in Christianity, forgiveness is something that increases fear. I got forgiveness, and then I really feared you. That's this idea of yurah. It gives you a sense of what the Bible means of fear. It's not the kind of fear that propels you away. It's the kind of fear that draws you in. It's a, it's a reverence. It's a reverence. It's an awe. It's a glory. It's a weightiness to God. Have you seen God in this kind of way? Have you, have you tasted this forgiveness that made you fear him, delight him, that drew you to him? Have you seen the weightiness of his power and authority and wisdom that drew you in? You know, Martin Luther describes sin. It's one of my favorite descriptions of what sin is, our sin nature is. Here's the Latin for it. He says, sin is, is our souls are incurvatus in se. This is the Latin phrase, but I like the, I like the way the Latin says it. And, and basically what Luther was saying is, our souls are curved back in on themselves. You and I were created by God with this impulse to praise him, to recognize him. You know what the word wor worship means? It comes from the old English, worth -ship, to ascribe worth to God. 
God is worthy. God is to be feared. God is great. What sin is, what the impulse of sin is, Luther said, is that impulse just curved back in on the self. It's supposed to go out, but we grab it for ourselves. I want worship. I want to be feared. I want to be important. And so this world that we live in makes you feel important. I hope you realize that. Every marketing tool, all social media, it's all designed, it's all tapping into this incurvatus imse. If the world can make you feel like you're in control, then you'll do whatever it wants because you're addicted to that. But my hope for our church at least, is that God would present himself to us in such a way that we would wake up from that spell and that we would see that God is truly worthy, that we would see the beauty of him, that we would see the beauty of his forgiveness, that we would see the beauty of his weight and wisdom. Have you seen Jesus like that? Has Jesus awakened you like that? We've looked at the worth of Jesus, but the second point is the cost of Jesus. Now, notice the text. I'm going to scroll back up here. Look at Paul's language here. Verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my Flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? He's saying, I am so in tune with, with what Jesus is doing and what his church is and what his body is that, that I actually rejoice to join him in suffering. For this purpose that I became a minister according to the stewardship, this, this gift that God has given me for you to make the word of God fully known to you, the mystery hidden for the ages, but that has now been revealed. I want you to hear this. If the worth of Jesus, the weightiness of Jesus has never made sense to you, if that coin has never dropped to you, then the cost of following Jesus never will. This will make no sense to you. <laughs> if, if Jesus is not worthy, then how could he, why would, why would he ever then be costly to us? Why would we ever want him to be costly? You could say it this way. The cost of Jesus, the, the, the cost of Jesus, meaning I'm, I'm willing to give this for Jesus, is equal to your understanding of the worth of Jesus. What you will give for Jesus is equal to your understanding of the worth of Jesus. If you've never seen Jesus as this treasure hidden in the field, then you won't go sell everything you can to buy that field. It'll just be another field that you kind of go to on Sundays, that kind of makes you feel good, that maybe gives you a little wisdom, but it won't be like this. And what is Paul doing? I mean, what is Paul's obedience? What, what has Paul given his whole life for? And of course, it's serving God's people. It's growing God's people. It's making disciples. Look at verse 28 and 29. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone, everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's saying, I want the whole world to find this treasure. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul is struggling, he's giving himself, he's suffering uh, for 
to grow the church, to see disciples made. Look how chapter two ends. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you. No one may pull you away from this with plausible arguments. But I am, even though I am absent in the body, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You know, the, the prayer that I have prayed the most for my children, I pray this almost every day for them, that they would love Jesus, his church, and his mission. Father, may Henrietta and John Gellis and Rainer love Jesus, his church, and his mission. And there's no one that I know that gets that prayer more than Paul. But you could say it this way, and I want you to hear this. Because Paul loves Jesus so much, because Paul loves Jesus, he loves his church and he loves his mission. Because he loves Jesus so much, he's given his whole life to advance the gospel. You know the first words that Jesus ever said to Paul? You know the first word, the first thing that Paul ever heard Jesus say? His name was Saul at that time. And he was persecuting the church. He was on a road from Jerusalem to Damascus to go and persecute Christians there, trying to make you know, the next top 40, under 40 list, chief persecutor of the Hebrew people, of Christians, top 40, under 40. And Jesus met him on the road. And here's the first thing Jesus said to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I think Paul thought about that the rest of his life. Why did Paul give so much energy? Why is he always pleading for the saints? Why is he suffering for the saints, saying, I rejoice because through my suffering, the gospel's going forward in you? I mean, I think of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, where he says, I am on my knees pleading with God that you would have the strength to comprehend. I love this. What is the height and width and depth of God's love for you in Christ Jesus? Why is Paul so concerned with the church? Why is Paul given everything for the church? Why is Paul given everything to see the gospel advance? You know why? Because when Jesus came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul understood how deeply Jesus is connected with and identifies with his people. And so Paul says, I am going to give the rest of my life to serve and love and build up and preach to and bring into this treasure those people. What about you? <laughs> Have you seen Jesus as worthy and weighty? So much so that, man, if I have Jesus, then nothing else really matters. If Jesus is worthy, I want you to hear this. If Jesus is worthy, then of course he will be costly. If Jesus is worthy, then of course he will be costly. If you really see Jesus is worthy, I just want you to hear this, listen to me. If you really see Jesus is worthy, then he will cost you your entire life. He will cost you your entire life. If Jesus is worthy, then he will cost you everything, your time, your energy, your life. It will all be his. Nothing will be yours anymore. Your understanding of the worth of Christ is equal to your life's cost, the cost that you'll give for Christ. 
Your understanding of the worth of Jesus is equal to whatever Jesus costs you. I mean, I think this is what Paul is saying. When I want everybody to be presented mature in Christ. The people that are mature in Christ are the people that Jesus has cost them everything, meaning that Jesus has total control over your life. It's all his time. It's all his wealth. It's all his relationships. Now, this doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be a martyr. I hope you're not a martyr. But even if you are a martyr, (laughs) it doesn't matter. If you've already given your life to Jesus, then who can take anything from you? <laughs> this is where you have the martyrs. They say, well, <laughs> take my life, whatever. It's, it's already Jesus's anyway. I'm not, I'm not hoping in anything of this world. My hope is satisfied in him. I have found in him so rich a treasure, so great a value, so sweet an identity, So strong a purpose that all of these other things, yes, I have this job, yes, I live in this place, but it's all lost. It's already Jesus's. It's all his. Let him do what he will with it. I consider everything I have gained as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Is Jesus the weightiest thing in your life? Is is, is everything else reflected, anchored around him? And if he is, then is that reflected in how you spend your time? You know, somebody looks at your life and says, man, this person loves the people of God. They love the mission of God. They're giving giving their life to the mission of God. Is Jesus the weightiest thing in your life? Is it reflected in how you spend your money? This person is always so generous. They're always giving themselves. Everything they have, they share with people. They want to see Jesus go forward in their lives. Is Jesus the weightiest thing in your life? And and how does that determine the way you spend your relationships with your friends and your family, the way you treat one another? Is Jesus the weightiest thing in your life? Is that reflected in the way that you date? Is that reflected in the way that you pursue purity? Is that reflected in your posture toward the poor and the needy? Is that reflected in the way you treat your parents? Does Jesus have the most weight in your life? Is Jesus the weightiest thing? And are you oriented toward him? Are you living toward him? And look, as I say this right now, I believe that even now, the Holy Spirit is at work. And you're realizing, you know what? Jesus hasn't cost me that much. Jesus hasn't cost me that much. Because the only thing I've really given to him is a, hour or two on Sundays. The only thing I've given him is this. The only thing I've given him is this or that. But most of my life, I am saying, this is mine. This is mine. He can't have this. I'm certainly not willing to obey him in this area of my life. I'm certainly not willing to obey him in that area of my life. Jesus may be convicting you right now. I just want you to hear this. When you really see Jesus as worthy, it'll be easy to give it up. So that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you isn't that you would be afraid of God in this kind of fear that pushes you away. All that, all that will lead you to is a kind of self-righteousness where you'll hide your true identity. You'll clean yourself up on Sundays and look awesome, but you know that there's so many idols in your life. Or it'll just lead you to leave church. I want you to kind of have the fear of God, like the Bible talks about, that draws you in. 
Like far from taking any way, anything away from me, if I really trust, if I really trade my life in order to have God, I actually find the greatest treasure, the greatest thing, the weightiest thing, the most beautiful thing. That's my hope, that God would present himself to you with so much beauty and so much love and so much weight and so much wisdom. He's like, I gotta have it. I gotta have it. I don't want anything, nothing in my life is worth separating me from that kind of treasure. And here's the amazing thing. I want you to hear this. The happiest people I know, the freest people I know, they're the people that have already done this. They're the people that trust God with their lives. They're not always hedging, right? They're not always having to protect themselves. They're always having to protect their wealth. Why? Because they don't need wealth to make them happy. They found a greater treasure. They're not always having to self-promote because they don't need notoriety or popularity to be happy. They know God, right? They're not always having to, you know, make sure that they're doing all these little things perfectly so they'll be seen as perfect because, you know, other people's opinion don't so much matter to them because they, they have a treasure that is worth so much more than all of that. They found it. The worth the cost of your life, your willingness to, to give your whole life to Jesus is equal to how worthy you see him to be. And so my, my prayer for you is that you would see his worth today. His worth of wisdom, his worth in creation, but also his worth in love and mercy. Have you seen his worth there? Jesus has done the most profound thing for you. You know, Jesus has done a lot for you, even just in letting us be alive. All things were made through him and for him, and he holds all things together. We talked about this last week. But he's done even a greater and more profound thing for you. That's why we sing about it and talk about it all the time. Jesus has met you in your deepest shame. Jesus has met you in your darkest sin. The power of the gospel is that Jesus came and was willing to fully identify with you and with me and to take on our record of sin and die the death that we deserve to die before God so that through him, you and I could be forgiven. Let me just ask you straight up, what in this world has loved you like that? Who in this world loves you like that? Everything in this world that says it will give you notoriety, as soon as you step out of line, will cancel you really fast. Jesus is the only one that was willing to be canceled, put out, struck down by God in order that you could know him, in order that you could find this treasure. So my hope and prayer today is you would see his worth, that you would see his beauty, that you would say, man, with joy, whatever this is in my life that I'm holding back from him, that I'm not really trusting the Lord with, I'm gonna sell it all and get the field. Let me pray for you. Lord, help us open our eyes, open our hearts today, Father. Reorder, rightly order our loves. Our loves are so out of whack. We love silly and small things and not great things. Not the great S thing that has shown us the great S love. And so, Father, right now, I pray that you would bring conviction and healing and a right understanding 
of your worth and the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope of glory, that despite our sin and failures, Lord, we can, we can take hold, we can be called sons and daughters of, of God the Most High. Convict us, give us faith today. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.